Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well today, Tim. It's a scorcher out there, but I'm trying to stay cool. I hope everyone out there is also doing well and staying cool. Speaking of cool, Tim, you're always cool. But how are you feeling? <laughs> I was going to say you're always cool. Um, I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling good today. I'm excited to speak with our new friend here, retired Sergeant Detective... John Fariso, and he was uh, head of the missing person squad in New York City. It's a pretty amazing background, and to get to pick his brain on missing persons cases was so valuable. Really refreshing as well to have somebody on who really knows their stuff about the topics that we're discussing. And he's very articulate, and he answers questions very completely, uh, just Really great to imagine the listener taking this in because what he's saying is super important. Um, his journey to that particular unit, the missing person squad unit, is really fascinating because he started off in internal affairs. And while it's not exactly like people are used to seeing it as portrayed on television, he did say that he had more friends going into it than he had coming out. And I think that is a really fascinating way to train yourself and have your, I don't know, just being thrown into the fire in terms of being employed by the New York Police Department. Yeah, internal affairs definitely doesn't seem like an enjoyable department, I think, because you're probably friends with a lot of these people that you're now forced to investigate. So uh, I could see that. And he definitely had a, a better time, I think, in the missing person squad. And he's an interesting guy, Lance. He volunteers with private investigations for the missing. And you can check out more about what they do at investigationsforthemissing.org. He's also a private investigator. He runs Ferris Investigations out of New York. And they have a website. It's ferrisinvestigations.org. And you can also find him on Twitter at John Fariso. You also may recognize his voice from our episode about the disappearance of Jessica Garino. And that was an episode that aired on May 26th, 2022. And Jessica went missing in January of 2012. And when he's not doing his investigative work, he does do a bit of writing. And in the show notes, you'll see a link to the Juniper Civic. And that is an article that he wrote on the events of 9-11-2001, where he was actually there when the plane struck the towers in New York City. And he goes into some harrowing detail in this article. Highly recommend uh, checking that out. And if you love this podcast, you should check out Missing Premium. That's where you get every single one of these episodes ad-free. You also get our weekly bonus show called Hidden Opinions. And Hidden Opinions, as you might imagine, is a peek behind the curtain. You get to see our thoughts and feelings and theories on the cases that we've covered for the public feed. But in this one, we get a little bit more, how do you say, animated. All right, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Please follow us on social media at MissingCSM. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the podcast. Sergeant John Fariso, how are you today? Doing great. It's really great to hear that you're doing great because we had to reschedule this due to a bit of a health emergency that you had last time. So it's wonderful to see that you are are with us. You, you seem to be looking really healthy. Um, tell people who are listening the importance of paying attention to a lunch order. I have a very severe uh, nut allergy all types of nuts. I've had it since I was a kid. So even at my age, I'm still watching it closely. It's unfortunately gotten worse. So my lunch order came in and I tell them on every lunch order, I put it in an email about my food allergy and they mixed it up and they gave me a chopped almond turkey salad, which I ate half the sandwich. So I was getting ready for this podcast and I was in the ambulance. So I never got to it. So I got to the emergency room. I sat there for a little while and the reaction was minimal, but I had to take the precautions. So if anyone's ever been to New York City, they know how it works there. It's There was a, a very large woman in handcuffs next to me. And there was a homeless man who got out of his gurney and peed on the floor and yelled at security, sitting right next to me while I was waiting. So that's what I was dealing with that day. <laughs> Much rather been on your podcast. <laughs> you you yeah. couldn't have zoomed in? You couldn't have zoomed in from the waiting room? <laughs> that would have been that would have been funny. It would have been a show, and believe me, you would have had a lot of viewers. <laughs> but the guys I worked with knew, and I had a I had a attack back in the '90s when I was a rookie cop, and I called in sick, and the word got out. So when I went to work the next day, the planter's peanut was all over my locker. <laughs> if you know the planter's peanut with the top hat, if yeah. anyone doesn't know, look it up. He was all over my locker. I, I thought that was funny, but we didn't. <laughs> the PD dealt with a lot of nuts. That was not uncommon. Well, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yes, I grew up in Queens, New York. There was five of us. We used to play stickball on the street and three of us became cops. So it's very common. <laughs> just This is just on one block of city block. So we grew up playing stickball and I was always intrigued by police work. I, I used to watch the police cars pass and I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to be in those cars. I'm going to do it. So Years, years later came, went to college, and the PD was always in the back of my mind. So 1993, I joined the police department. I, I became a cop in Queens, and I really learned a lot very fast. And uh, there's really not much of a time for training once you're out of the academy. It's just kind of thrown at you. But when I was on patrol, I always wanted to be in the detective squad. So I strived for that, but it's, it's not easy to do in the beginning. So as time went by, I watched what the detectives do and watched the detectives do, and I, we used to see cases and I would make the report or arrest the person, but the detectives really figured it all out. And they would come up with a tremendous amount of in information in a strong, in a short period of time. I was intrigued by that. So I wanted to be a detective. Ironically, I studied for sergeant. So I made sergeant, had nine years on. And after being sergeant two years, I said, you know, I never became a detective. And I kind of passed that rank. So I was a supervisor 
I don't know how all the departments work, but in the NYPD, you're a supervisor, you're not a detective. So I put into different units and uh, nobody was accepting me because I was a supervisor. So the only one that was willing to take me was the Internal Affairs Bureau. So I had to give them how the NYPD works. If you're a supervisor, if you give them two years investigating police corruption, after those two years, they'll put you in the detective squad as a supervisor of the detectives. So that was my route into it. So I did the internal affairs for two years. I learned a tremendous amount of information there. You know, it's very distasteful to look at cops when they commit a crime or something wrong. There are times they are have done it wrong, but there's many times they did and they're falsely accused. So we clear, we clear a lot of them. It's not like television. There's a lot of false accusations, but even when a cop is guilty and you have to investigate it, it's still distasteful work. Nobody wants, to. I could say I, it wasn't for me. So I gave him my two years and then the detective squad wanted me. And I says, you know, what's interesting. I want to go to a special unit now because I put two years doing your high profile work here in an internal affairs. So the missing person squad, quit. I said, that's going to be interesting. So I had done a lot of reading growing up and, you know, in college, I was reading a lot of true crime. So missing person cases were always interesting. I watched a lot of TV shows about it. So I went to the missing person squad. And when I got there, there was a lot of cold cases and there was a lot, the volume was, I couldn't believe the volume. There was 7,000 cases a year coming into our office. 7,000 seems like a lot, but what, what they do is they, when the detectives in the precinct can't close a case, they send it to us. So out of those 7,000, 90% are closed, which means the person's located either dead or alive within the first week, sometimes within the, at two hours. A lot of runaways from group homes. That's common in New York City. There's very dysfunctional group homes in New York City. So kids run away constantly. So anyone under 18 is a runaway. If you're 19 and you leave college, you're not a runaway. There has to be a different circumstance, which would be possible suicide or crime involved. So as I was there, a cold case, cold cases, I would constantly look at them and I started adopting these cold cases. Some of them went back to the 70s. And when I was doing them, I realized that a lot of work had been done on the cases, but police work changed so much over the years. And um, so you had to go back to those old cases. It was hard to sometimes find the people where they lived, but it's not uncommon for someone 20 years later to have the same phone number and live at the same address. I called up a woman, just made a cold call about she was listed as interviewed. And as soon as I told her missing person, she said, did they find that girl's body? And this is 20 years later. That woman said it to me immediately as I called her. So I went to the house and I interviewed her. Unfortunately, that case is still active. But that's just an example of, you know, detectives, they do good work when they do it. And if the case isn't solved and it goes cold, to me, a cold case is anything over 10 years. Uh, different departments will, will say it differently. But if a body's not located... When, it, when you get 10 years into a case, there's really not much more to get done unless somebody speaks, somebody comes forward. You can have a deathbed confession, which is common. You can have a jailhouse confession, but the jailhouse confessions, I mean, I could do an entire podcast on that. That is very, any investigators out there that are running with that story, the jailhouse confessions, you really need to step back and see where it's coming from. I'm not saying that crimes do not get solved through there. They do. But um, some of these guys will talk just to get a weekend out of jail. So it's a shame. They, I've been, not me personally, but I've seen it done. They, they'll pull people down a rabbit hole just for 
what why this person just wants to talk. So any investigator who meets in any type of case, not just missing persons, when you when you get a guy in prison talking, you have to look at where it's coming from. But yet they have to be listened to because those <laughs> quite often are the guys with the information. So I did missing persons for five years, the NYPD, and I retired, worked different security jobs. So now I have my own private investigation company at, and uh, Ferris Investigations. So I, I operate out of New York City. The reason I got back into missing person cases was I belong to different societies, groups of uh, investigators, Society for Professional Investigators. I joined them. They're a New York City group. There's a lot of talent with them. And I would run into different type of investigators. They would do Airbnb investigations. There's podcasters there. There's different types of um, home and health, healthcare, hospital investigations into incidences in the hospitals. So they would ask me about missing person cases quite often. So I said, wow, if these experienced investigators keep asking me about missing person cases, I should be doing this. And I still had my knowledge. I still had my talent. I said, why should I give up that talent? If the NYPD gave me that talent, why should I not use it? I could help others. I could open up a private eye company with it and I could still do the work I was good at. I continue to do it to this day. I mentor other investigators throughout the country. I've helped, I've talked to people in Oregon, Texas, Tennessee. It seems like there's a lot of missing person cases coming out of those three areas. Crystal meth quite often, heroin, number two, but crystal meth causes a lot of missing person cases. There's human trafficking involved in younger people. Unfortunately, these become cold cases. So I reached out to private investigators for the missing. I saw a lot of talent there when I researched the company, the organization, the nonprofit. You guys included. I saw the podcast. It's done professionally. You guys are not anti-police. You don't um, you don't get into that. There are other people out there that run that angle in their cases. And what I will say to any family member who was having an issue with the police department, even if the police department made a mistake or did something wrong, going against them on the very case they're working is not going to help your situation. There are ways to work with the police department. And there's many times, and I know this for a fact, the police department cannot give all the information out. So a lot of times family members want things done. It can't be done at that moment. And especially if it's a crime. When it's a crime, it, it really is a criminal investigation. It's not a really a missing person. It's a criminal investigation. So that's how I kind of liaison what I'm doing with your organization. I mean, I saw the talent there. And with the Garino case, that's a good example of um, a liaison with the other departments, the police departments, because they, if someone with no law enforcement just randomly calls a police department, it's a very good chance they're going to be skeptical. They might not give the information. When someone with law enforcement experience calls, and especially what I do, my cases, they, there's a, there is a camaraderie, we'll still speak. And if there's any mistakes done on the case 10 years ago, it, it, I'm not saying it can be fixed, but we can still work on it now. And you can work from that. And that's that's common in the Garino case. And there's things that still can be done. Not necessarily a mistake is with the Garino case, you have two states involved. You have, and I spoke about this on the podcast, you have Tennessee and you have North Carolina. And that's very common in missing person cases because of transient people. And we all know that many people who go missing person, there's some type of vice in their background. And the vice in the background has them moving around a lot. And this, uh, that is a good case and a reason why there's two states involved and two separate investigators. Yeah, I want to get into uh, Jessica's case very shortly, but I want to rewind a bit 
the concept of internal affairs within the police department and you doing two years with that uh, division is really fascinating to me, mostly because I think what we learn as civilians is what we hear on uh, what we see on television, what we see in the movies, like how the internal affairs uh, individuals are treated. Is, Is that close? Like were you viewed differently when you went in and viewed differently when you got out? You lose more friends than you make friends. I think I expected to hear that. Yes, but the people that won't tolerate you because of internal affairs are usually the type of people that maybe they didn't have your best interests or they probably might not even be the best investigators. They, Because anyone who's done law enforcement long enough and has a good head on their shoulders knows that there are people who should not have been in the place they were. And if they do something wrong or continue to do something wrong and there's a pattern of wrong behavior, somebody needs to investigate it. I'm of the belief if someone's going to investigate it, it should be someone who's done the work. Because I used to get cases when the prisoner would say, my jaw's broke, my jaw's broken, the cops broke my jaw. And then I'd go to Rikers Island and interview him, sure, his jaw's broken. And then I see the video and I'm like, well, there's a little more to this story. There's a gun involved. There's two cops injured. There's fighting over the gun in the street. Back to with the prisoners, you have to be careful in just taking their story. You have to really dig into it. So that's a good example of, yes, the prisoner was injured, but somebody needed to investigate that. And if a civilian investigated it, I don't think they would understand how that prisoner got there and why it has to be looked at. I joke around about the internal affairs when people ask me, I don't deny it. It's what I did, but um, I, I would make light of it at times. And people that know me know that, you know, my I'm a cop, but there there is a job to do. And it, there was times that that work needed to be investigated. So not the most enjoyable assignment that you had in your career. No, but I learned a tremendous amount. Yeah. The reason I learned a tremendous amount was because when a cop is accused of a crime, it's not like a guy who's been arrested six times and is is on parole. You know, they're looking at it like this guy has a career and a family. We need to make sure this is correct. So there is a tremendous investigation put into the officer. Very often the officers are cleared. Unfortunately, You know, I was told in internal affairs as soon as I got that, that the officers you help will never know the the work you did to help them. They're never going to know that. So when you go in with that aspect, yes, I'll do the right thing. I'll help them along. But they're not going to know how the investigation helped them. So that's common. Uh, That's not an easy thing to deal with because how you were viewed with that. But if I didn't do internal affairs bureau, I would not have gotten to the missing person squad and I would not have had the experience I do today. Very cool. Yeah. And I want to hear more about the missing person squad. And a little while ago, you said that uh, your th- that squad got 7,000 missing person cases per year. Was that was that the what I heard the number? Yeah. And that's on the low end. Right. And then most of them are clear, but that's 20 per day. So how, how many are are cleared? I would say 90 percent. So 20 per day, you would have you might have one or two that are still open by the end of the week. I say open as an active example of that would be a group home where two, two kids run away on a Friday and Monday, one of them says, you know what, this is bull crap. I'm going home. <laughs> it's cold out. I'm not running away. I'm going home. I'd rather be in school. The other kid says, no, I want to smoke weed. I want to ride my skateboard and I want to live in Manhattan. That is still an active case. The other one's closed, one's active. So that runaway, that case stays active until he's located or he comes back. And quite often the runaways, they will just walk right back into the place. Hey, I'm back. Yeah, we look for him. But, and I mentioned the skateboard and the marijuana. It's because you have to find an angle. 
And this is what I tell investigators when they reach out to me on a case they're stumped on. What is the missing person's angle? Which means that what's their vice? Is it gambling? Prostitution? Is it prostitution frequenting or prostitution they're prostituting themselves? Is it drugs? And if it's drugs, is it heroin? Is it crystal meth? The reason I say that is because all those types of cases have different types of missing persons. So, you know, the crystal meth, you find people binging on it for days on end. And the last they're seen is, you know, with no shirt on in either extreme heat or extreme cold running off somewhere. And you have to think about that. Okay, they ran in this direction. Did they get lost and passed away in that area? So if it's a golf course or it's a park, there's a good chance that body is in that golf course or that park. And you'll find them exactly as they were on that video running in that direction. And unfortunately, there are suicides when we would get cases when someone pulls up to the Verrazano Bridge and they park their car, they put their ID here, leave the keys in, sometimes a note, sometimes not, and someone saw someone jump. We could all assume it's that person in that car, but until that body's found, they're missing. So that's a good example of a case that would stay active for some time until that body is located. Right. And even though there's there's not a true mystery there as to what happened, um, the body still needs to be found to resolve the case officially. Correct. Uh, with cold cases, really, you're just locating the body. You might get a crime out of it. That's not what I do. If I see a crime, I will go back to the investigators and say, this is a crime. This is what's going on. Investigators as in the police investigators, because I had an investigator reach out to me and he wanted me to help him investigate something. And I said, you need to stop. This is a crime. This is not, this is, yes, it's a missing person, but there's a homicide going on here. I said, I advise you to let the law enforcement tell them what you want to do, but don't do. That's pretty much what he did. And that's any advice I would give people when they reach out to me on a case that is an obvious homicide. I would tell them to step back and let the law enforcement that are working at that time do it. Okay. So in the circumstance that you just mentioned where somebody comes to you for help and you you have you have identified that this is a homicide but there's no body there what are some of the factors that go into you making that determination that this is in fact a homicide well i had a case in another state where an investigator reached out to me and it was um a wife a woman who recently was divorced she was dating a younger employee and there was a business and then there was recent construction with cement and she's missing. So I explained to him he wanted to some type of dogs or some type of radar with the cement. And I told him, I believe you're correct. You need to look at that area, but that's not you to do that. You need if the law enforcement isn't already thinking on those lines, you need to tell them. And there's probably a very good chance they've already ready to do that. The reason I tell investigators is that is because you can corrupt the crime scene. You can ruin a case. And even when I was in the missing person squad, I used to get reached out to by investigators. And there was times that investigators, you know, they they wanted to take the case and get paid. But I told them we cannot do things we're not supposed to do. We can't put everyone on the side because you're getting paid when this person's located. And those weren't even crimes. Those were just separate circumstances. You know, I'll help people with their cases, but I'll give them my advice. It's always truthful because I'm in New York City and I can only operate in New York, so I can only advise people out of state, or if I go out of state, I need to take an investigator from that state with me. That's how it works with New York. I don't know about other states, but New York seems to have the strictest rules with everything. So So you read the situation and you determine based on the factors that are involved in this particular circumstance that it's more, more, most likely 
that this woman was murdered and because it was a construction site and the concrete was poured she this is the most likely scenario based on everything else said that goes into her disappearance um because ultimately she's gone yes in in other cases that don't have a body and don't have blood or really anything other than the person maybe has abandoned their car on the side of the road. And there's not a lot to go uh, on as far as evidence around the car. No signs of struggles. Uh, we talk about this. We, we have numerous stories that we hear about cars that are just found. Could be a struggle. Maybe not. You know, Maybe something's on the ground. Where do you go with that? Where do you start? as an investigator, piecing that together. How I start is how is the car abandoned? Is it on the side of a highway? Is it near a waterway? Is it near a bridge? If it's near a waterway or a bridge, it could be a suicide. If it's rural, you know, it's hard to say. There are cases when you have people pretending to be law enforcement that have pulled cars over on rural roads. I've seen that in my patrol work, uh, not to that level, I've seen crimes committed, but not to a missing person level. Those are, there have been cases like that. So that is always a possibility. Does it look like the car was forced off the road? Does it look like there was a passenger with them when they got out, which would mean kind of perfectly parked? And is the, is the car parked hidden? If the car is hidden, the person missing probably didn't hide it. The person who hid it was the person who's responsible for the person being missing. If someone is trying to hide something, unless it's a suicide, they probably will not leave the car out in the open. And among your first things that you do after assessing the situation, do you then determine whether or not you need to contact a family member? Maybe do conduct an interview with a family member, or do you save that until maybe you've spoken with law enforcement or something? How I work is I speak with the family first. That's something I would advise investigators to do but it's really the personality of the investigator. The reason I do that is because there's a lot of dysfunctional within the families of the people that go missing. So quite often you're talking to a half sister who once lived with her, who's reporting her missing, or you're talking with one parent and the other parent is not in the picture. So you have to determine who they lived with, what's the family dynamics. And unfortunately, and I come across this all the time, there's a lot of lying from the family. Lying as in there's a vice involved and the family is not telling you what the vice is. So how I do it is when I speak to a family member, I tell them, I have to ask you a difficult question. Um, was your daughter prostituting? Was your husband a compulsive gambler? Did he owe money to the wrong people? And if I don't ask that question, quite often it's not told. Uh, I don't 100% know why other podcasters have asked me that. The only thing I could say is that they feel that police are not going to investigate it for that reason. And I understand where the family's coming from, but the family needs to understand if you don't tell the investigators, you lost an angle on it. An angle as in you have no place to start. So I'll ask the family, what's the vice? And quite often there is, not always, there's a vice. And when I find if it's drugs, crystal meth, prostitution, if it's a young girl's prostitution, there's a good chance there's human trafficking involved. And then you look into computer issues. That's a very big topic. And that's how I go with it. Now, quite often when I ask the family those questions, I'm still lied to about half the times. I can't explain why. I, I don't want to speculate, but I am quite often lied to. So I will ask and I will go with the, what they tell me. 
And if it comes out later that there's more information, okay, there's more information. It should have grown up first, but it wasn't. So then after I speak to family, I'll reach out to the law enforcement. The reason I do that is because if I reach out to law enforcement and I tell them the family's not even speaking to me, if I was still in law enforcement, I don't know if I would give someone out of state that information if the family's not even talking to them. Because it doesn't seem there's something not matching. Once you have the family on board with the investigator, you can reach out to the law enforcement and you could have a relationship like that. But it, if you're missing the family and, and investigator connection, the law enforcement connection is missing also. That's how I work. Right. Interesting uh, points, um, uh, especially about, um, I guess, vices and how families uh, sometimes will not be as forthcoming as uh, you'd hope. From your perspective, or generally speaking, from investigators' perspectives, would you do anything different if they they told you the vice and you know it was methamphetamines or something like that? Not at all. Um, just because someone's on crystal meth, you know, and they go missing, that's still a missing person. I mean, you know that that they still need to be found, and quite often it's the body and especially if the family has no drug use. If you get a grandmother whose grandson is missing, that grandmother wants that kid help for that child, whether he's on drugs or not, or she. I don't investigate it any differently. Uh, can I speak for every officer out there on patrol? No, but I can speak for private eyes because anyone who gets into the private eye field wants to do this a little more than just this is my career and I do all types of law enforcement. So I personally will investigate that case the same, no matter what the vice is. But I can't say the same. I will put the effort into it, but the investigation is done differently because the vices will determine what angle I will look at, how, why they witness it. Right. But could it make it more difficult to investigate the case if the associates of the missing person are potentially um, on drugs or hard to track down? Yes, I kind of spoke about that before with dysfunctional families. There are times that the sister is the one you need to speak to and the sister's in rehab. Is rehab going to let you in there interviewing them? No, they're not. I've had that happen numerous times. So that does create an issue, but it can be worked around, but it's not the best situation. By the time someone goes missing, there's, it's, it's a bad situation. So you have to work within that bad situation. It's not like television. Television is, is totally just... They have this, uh, the socialite in the park who goes out drinking and never comes home. Those cases are rare. It's, that's, they happen, but it's usually the 15-year-old girl with the online boyfriend who's 35. That's the girl that goes missing. Yeah, and was that uh, very common for you in the missing person squad? Yes, mostly out of the group homes. I say women, but they're all boys that get involved. The reason I say boys is because anyone under 18, it's, there's a, it's usually the 15-year-old girl from the projects who um, she'll meet. It's very common situation. She'll meet a guy online who's in his 30s and she tells everybody it's a boyfriend, a boyfriend. She meets him. And then, you know, it's not like years ago, the guy driving around a Cadillac. Now it's a guy at the Predators Online. And that is one thing television has correct. The Predators are online. They're there. And they are looking to get girls into human trafficking. Now, these women, they, they speak to these guys online and there's always an age difference. And I don't know the exact forensics of the computer, how far they got into it. But at one point they leave their mother or their father, whoever they're living with. And the mother's like, well, she has a boyfriend, an older guy and he lives here. And then we find out that, you know, there's a, 
some type of online account with her prostituting. Now, do we know she's a prostitute? No, but we can determine from the photos, this girl's a prostitute. And, you know, she thinks the girl, the guy's her boyfriend. And then unfortunately he buys her nice clothes. And then he says, well, you know, you got to pay for this hotel room. How are you going to pay for this hotel room? And then, you know, he brings a friend over without elaborating. That's what's going on. And then, you know, the girl will eventually come home, will be returned and she'll say, yeah. And then I was turning tricks seven guys a day in this cheap hotel room. And these guys that, that take these girls in human trafficking, they, they're quite often involved in organized gangs. There's usually an organized gang connection. And you'll, you'll come across that, like this person is connected with this gang and that gang is, he's part of the prostitution angle of the gang. I noticed that quite often. And it's the big gangs that are involved and they take them out of state. It's not uncommon for some reason. I don't know why New York, they were all ending up in New Jersey. I don't know. I'm sure different states have different, uh, I'm sure like Arizona would go to Vegas, California to Vegas and vice versa. It's not uncommon with human trafficking to be brought out of state. I think personally it's to remove the person who's on, human trafficking is very, very often underage girls. And they're underage as in 16, 17. Unfortunately, there are people that are willing to pay more for that. So they'll take them out of state. And that's quite, un it's not uncommon for the girl out of state to call from a hotel room back to where she went missing. And then she's returned through another police department. That's when I get, have to network with other investigators throughout the states. If I have to deal with that, I, I cannot, uh, as a New York investigator, I have to network with others in other states for that. And it's always a cheap hotel. It, it's, there's a common thread. There's a common theme within human trafficking. You had mentioned um, dysfunctional group homes earlier on, and I think you alluded to it again in this last statement that you just made, uh, that some of this sex trafficking might be coming out of or these dysfunctional group homes are being used as trafficking grounds or like a pickup area. What, can you unpack that a little bit for me? What is What do you mean by dysfunctional group homes? Anyone who's you know been a cop in a big city will tell you they're constantly at group homes for different type of incidences. I think that the runaways, because if they're in a group home, there's, there's an issue for them to be there to begin with. And without getting into how they end up at that group home, I think it's a, what's the word? The predators will look for those type of people because a lot of people don't realize the predators know who to pick. They pick the person where the parents aren't going to quickly look for them. You know, quite often the predator is the same age as the mother. And the mother's boyfriend is younger than the predator. So there's a whole circle of dysfunction going on there. So I personally feel that the person in the group home, not the person there, they're almost targeted because the predator will know they already, their family is already not connected with them. I could remove that person and the family is not going to quickly look. For them. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. 
our associate Jennifer Amell spoke with you a little while ago in an episode that we released on the missing feed about the disappearance of Jessica Garino out of Goldsboro, North Carolina in January of 2012. And she was a 21 year old uh, white woman. And you looked into this case uh, a little bit and, and did you bring it to private investigations for the missing? They brought it to me. They, uh, okay. how I helped them is I, when I was with the NYPD, I used to have cases for the detectives. I had eight, tes- eight detectives that worked for me. So I would originally look at the case and detectives did most of the work, but I would tell them what angles to look at and what boxes to check off and what needed to be done. And I would look at the case and say, this sounds like this and this sounds like that. Let's work on this and we work on it together. So when I approached your organization, they, they asked me to, I guess you'd call it screen the cases that come in. Um, we screen them for... Is it a crime? Um, is this a family abduction? Family abduction quite often goes out of the country. You have to look for those things within those cases. Is it an active criminal investigation? Sometimes that is uncovered very quickly. With the Garino case, I will say I didn't see human trafficking in that case. I saw something separate when uh, I interviewed the sister. Garino was a great case. Jessica was a great case of family involvement, which was the sister. Sister was very honest. And um, I, I didn't get to speak to the investigators in, in Tennessee. They didn't recontact me and I didn't push the issue, but I did speak to the Goldsboro, North Carolina uh, state investigators. They have a different dynamics on how it operates there, but there's state investigators operating out of there. And it is a cold case. It's 10 years. So I get a wealth of information from that investigator. And, you know, it's, it is a cold case. We're going on 10 years and we, we need to hope to locate the body at this point. Yeah, and tragic circumstances around Jessica's disappearance, and she she did have a, a history of drug use, and uh, seemed to be, I guess, embroiled in um, a relationship that that uh, appeared to be toxic. Oh, definitely. From the, the interviewing people, she was. This is a classic example of one state to another. She started out in Tennessee. She met an individual who was somehow involved in the drug trade and openly showed it to people. And there was drug use within the apartment in the house. And she went with him to North Carolina. And when she went to North Carolina, she went missing and she got addicted to heroin at one point during that. She has not been heard from. It's even, we're even unsure the exact date of her going missing because I spoke with Jennifer Mel about this. It's family tried to contact her. They weren't hearing from her. The best they could do was go with the last day she was on her phone because her phone stopped working at one point. So a lot of investigators put too much focus on the date of the missing, the exact date. It's not as important sometimes as people think. If it's a suicide, it, it is kind of important for locating where the body is. But in a case like that, you can't pinpoint the exact day. So the best they have is January. And they pinpointed it to the day the phone stopped working. So she was on a phone every day and stopped doing it. So we assume she went missing the day she stopped using the phone. The addiction to heroin, is that now the vice that you're going to or you use when you're looking into Jessica's case? Yes, that's what uh, the first question I asked is, mm-hmm. where was the vice? I asked the prostitution angle. I asked everything. And heroin was the vice. And heroin is a little different than crystal meth. Because my experience with dealing with people with heroin is they constantly go on and off it. They constantly take 
methadone. So you will get people who are off heroin and then maybe they get out of prison or maybe they had a breakup and they decide to go party. And I don't know how the doses work, but they overdose because they're doing what they used to do. Their body's not ready for it. So it's quite common for overdoses, which are accidents. And the person could overdose somewhere else and they're not found. Or I've had cases in the NYPD. I had a case where we were looking for a man from Jersey and his wife had his car, his said his car was parked at this one location. We, we kept knocking on the door. The detectives kept knocking on the door. After a while, the guy from the apartment finally told us he was in the basement. And I wasn't there. The detectives went to the basement and, you know, they threw mattresses over the guy and smoked crack in the room for days, just left them there. So with hardcore drug users, things go on that we, we can't comprehend. And it's not uncommon for people to dispose of a body after an overdose. And that's where the missing person comes in. And that's and the they, angle I believed happened on this case. Oh, really? Yes, I, I believe that. Just like in the other podcast, the individual in Tennessee had told people that someone had, in, someone had overdosed around him and the police showed up and he said, this will never happen again. I'll never have the police show up on an overdose. So a statement like that, if it is correct, and I believe it was correct, needs to be remembered as a motive for why somebody would dispose of a body. You know what I have a hard time wrapping my head around, but I know it exists, is that when you have somebody who has introduced an individual to a drug like heroin and that person is also a drug user and they're in a situation where one of them overdoses and they're able to get their get their self together enough to then dispose of a body so it's never found is like kind of mind-blowing to me that they have that frame of mind, even though they are a drug addict and just probably coming off of a, you know, a ridiculous uh, bender. Yeah. Sometimes um, I do know that with the individuals, the reason I say individuals, because there was a brother involved with her boyfriend. Uh, there were two friends that live with them. So quite often these drug dens, what I would call it's, it's not just a guy and a girl. Sometimes it's more than one person. So I'll give you a scenario where, you'll have a drug den and two of the people have felony warrants in that den and uh, the girl overdoses. They don't want the police onto their location and where they're living or what they're doing. And so unfortunately with these types of people, it's easier to dispose of the body than it is to call 911 and have the right thing done. Yeah. And I guess I could see that scenario playing out more often if there are criminals involved in that. Um, and, and this is kind of a scenario that we've talked about for years, um, going back to our work on Maura Murray's case and Brianna Maitland's case. And uh, we've often kind of considered it like a parallel to, uh, and I'm not trying to be funny, but uh, the movie I Know What You Did Last Summer, how yes. that sort of situation yeah. happened in that movie. And I always said that I, I just I did not think it was very common because the amount of people that have to keep quiet about it um, seems unlikely to me. But uh, back to the point of if, if it's drug addicts, criminals already, um, maybe that's a little easier. My long, really long-winded question here is, I guess, in your experience, what what is more common? Is is that scenario um, the I know what you did last summer parallel or stranger abduction more common in missing persons cases? Stranger abduction is very, very rare, very rare. I was in 
the missing person squad for five years. I saw it twice in five years. And that's with 7,000 cases a year. And out of those two cases, one case I was the supervisor on, I always suspected it was an accident where a body, the kid's body wasn't found. But that was never proven. That was just my how I looked at that case. But there was too many people involved in that case to run with that angle. That's something I've decided to write about in my police writing about that case. And that's one of the cases I will be writing about. And there was another case when it was um, a child who went, I was actually not working that case, somebody else did. Child went missing and he was reported in video surveillance of the stores, showed him speaking with another man and getting in the man's car. So they got the plate, went to the man's house. And unfortunately he killed the child in the house. So that is a stranger abduction. It was closed right away. So the entire time I was there, I've only seen two stranger abductions. Now, there are custodial interference cases when husband, wife, uh, ex-husband or ex-wife does take a child and run away with the child. It's a, definitely a crime and a missing person case, but it's not a stranger abduction. That's another thing that the media has wrong. They make too many movies and shows about the stranger abductions when they make it sound like it's, it's a global event and happening all the time when it's very rare. By my loose math, based on... 7,000 cases coming in per year and your five years on the force. That's one out of 17,500 missing persons reports that were filed in New York um, that you worked on were stranger abductions. So that's extremely rare. Um, what about the I know what you did last summer parallel? I've never dealt with a case like that. I have dealt with cases like that with families. I mean, families as in the family secret. So I did see that movie and I found it interesting. I do believe that has happened somewhere in this country. There's no doubt. I, I, you were correct when you said that many people need to keep quiet. There are, you get five people, someone's going to have a conscience. Someone's going to report that, especially as time goes by. Someone might get arrested and if they get out of jail free card, someone might find what they really believe and say that's wrong. Uh, I did have a case in the NYPD when a family reported somebody missing and we would constantly go to the house and it just didn't seem right. We all got this gut feeling that this family is responsible for the missing and yet are reporting it to us to hide what they've done. So the, you know, cop humor comes into everything. And I used to tell detectives before they went out, I would point to them and I would say, guys, whatever floorboard creaks, remember that spot because that's what we're digging up in their house. And ironically, with this case, without giving too much of it up, the body was located in a outside of the city. And as soon as we contacted the family, they blamed the dead relative. So it was almost as if they had that story ready. It was very, it can never be proven, but that's, so that's the closest to what you're talking about I've seen. And it's not uncommon. I have worked with other cases when I felt the person reporting it was actually the person responsible, especially with husband wife situations. They exist, they're rare. There are cases when, like on television, I've had people report it and I strongly suspected that person reported is the person responsible. And sometimes it's uncovered, sometimes it can't be proven. Without uh, giving away any of your trade secrets, it struck me as interesting when you said that these people would have the stories ready and then you seem to have, through your experience, a, a, a way of telling how much guilt somebody has in connection to uh, a murdered individual or a missing person. Are there things that you look for? I mean, is a is somebody who is like stammering and sweating, is that an immediate indication of guilt or are they just nervous? No, it's not immediate of guilt. Um, true criminals aren't going to sweat and 
get nervous because they've been lying their whole life. So it's it's like them telling the conversation. And by the time they've called the police and you're there, it's been rehearsed numerous times. What I noticed is they'll tell you the story, but they will brush right over the exact crime. They'll tell you everything up to the crime and they'll quickly say, and a door opened and she left. But wait a second, what just happened before and after? They opened the door, she left. So they're not telling you one important part of the story or they're insisting that the, this person ran away. Person ran away, ran away. Most parents and family members really aren't gonna, unless they are a runaway, I'm not just gonna automatically, that person ran away, that person ran away. And any cop will tell you who's done a lot of police work, you get a sixth sense and you could just tell. And I guess that's the best way to say it. Any law enforcement watching this will know what I'm talking about. You could see when that situation is coming across. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Well, you mentioned your writing. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing? When I was a rookie cop, I used to read a lot of true crime stories as a kid. And uh, I'd read these stories. I go, wow, that's great. When I become a cop, I'm going to write these stories. And then as I joined the NYPD, I realized within two weeks, I could have had a chapter. (laughs) So I would sit in the patrol car and I would see interesting things. And I'd go home and I'd put it down. This is before computers. So we're talking early 90s. I'd put pencil to paper and I'd write it down and I would continue to read. And then I was, I was write the stories, write the stories. Now the stories I write is I've read so many stories about catching the bad guy. Very few stories I write about catching the bad guy. I, I put a lot of cop humor in it. I put a lot of stuff in it that never made it to a police report. Like if I arrested someone for something totally stupid and seven years later, I arrest his friend for the same thing. And he remembers me and we're not even in the same borough and the guy never changed his life. And it's the same situation years later. I would always write somewhat humorous stories because catching the bad guy stories is a lot of them. They are in there, but I put a lot of detective work to how we got to find this person or to the crime. And I debated to put the internal affairs cases in there. And all my cases, the names have changed, the situations changed. No one could figure out who or where that happened. And there were some very interesting cases in internal affairs that turned out to be correct. We used to get a lot of calls in internal affairs where, you know, they were being beaten by the police and we would hear yelling and screaming over the phone because I used to scream the 911 calls for that. It would be determined that this person was hiding in a closet and the police were with a battering ram hitting the closet door as he was on the phone with me. So those are stories that when I uncovered that, I wrote about those. I says, this guy was on the phone with internal affairs as the battering ram with cops with automatic weapons were coming in the closet. On. So I said, how do I not put that down on paper? So... I'm going to self-publish these stories. I'm working on that now. And then people will be interested in seeing it. I think so. (laughs) I think so, because we had a gentleman on, a former New York police officer named Vic Ferrari. That's his uh, pen name. And I just love the fact that he was writing these stories that were humorous. He was sarcastic. And it just took that um, cop element away and made him into a human being. And I really feel like a lot of people need to see police officers 
on a more human level like that, that these stories aren't all, you know, chasing the bad guys and, and, and every day is just like full tilt that you can have some sense of humor and, and uh, get by in a healthy, productive, you know, gallows humor type way. And you can get by and still live your life. I mean, we're just, we're just so like assaulted by media with the same trope of especially New York city cops. It's the same trope. And it's like, okay, so (laughs) you're, you're on your fourth wife. You're an alcoholic. You're just (laughs) beaten down. You know, like I just love the idea that you're writing this and, you know, same thing with Vic. Um, And yeah, it's just, it's a profession. You're a human being and people should see that. Yes. I liked Vic's work. I read his work. And when I read his work, I really felt like I was back in the patrol car because I knew exactly what he was talking about. And my stories are similar to his. It's a lot of humor involved. Vic did, I believe it was auto crime. So I was in the detective squad stuff. So my stories will have that angle. And his stories had his angle. But I understand his writing. I understand the cop humor. And anyone who's in law enforcement and doesn't have, and even after law enforcement, if you don't have a sense of humor about what you saw and what you did, it's going to be hard because I'm not saying you have to make light of it, but you know, cop humor never ends after September 11th, you know, it, it, the cop humor didn't go away. You know, you can't just be the person who's internalizing everything. You have to move on. And, you know, any profession that deals with sadness and, and these type of situations has to make humor of it or light of it. And uh, you mentioned 9-11. You wrote an essay on uh, your experience on 9-11. I thought that was, uh, that was excellent. And um, what made you write that? That was, an, you know, that was interesting. I, if you read it so you'll understand that anyone who reads it, it, you put it in the show notes for me and I'd like them to read it, comment on it and get back to me. Uh, I already had that self-published uh, within a local paper here called the Juniper Berry. And they've, they, they read it and uh, they were going to put it in their magazine and they said, no, we're going to put this online. So I wrote 17 pages. I remember that day like, like it was yesterday. And I could recall every incident that day. And I wrote it from my perspective, everything I seen. I did it because other people wrote about that day, but they broadened it out. I wrote about, the, I was a half mile from the building when a plane struck. So I... I remembered everything on the uh, people I saw. Uh, I saw birds walking on the floor. I wrote about that. Crazy women were, were coming up to me trying to get through to get back to their apartments. And I was so close to the scene. And I talked about the planes hitting. I talked about people jumping from the towers. You know, those things I really felt need to be put into that story because future generations need to see the human angle of that. Yes, it was a horrible event, but New York City pulled through, the NYPD pulled through. It was not mass hysteria in the street. It was a controlled chaos. And I was in that crowd running. And I ran from that tower when it fell. The smoke didn't hit me. I was a half mile from it. I ran from it. The rumbling was behind me. And it was a wall of smoke when it was not smoke like from a campfire. This was a wall of smoke where you looked like you couldn't go see through it. What You definitely couldn't see through it. It was a combination of crushed concrete and every debris all put together. And it was actually rumbling as it was coming up the avenues of Manhattan. And uh, that's when I ran from there. And I ran away from it towards the Brooklyn Bridge. And man, I looked at that bridge. I wanted to get home to my family, my wife at the time. I couldn't do it. But I looked at that bridge and I saw everyone walking across it. And as the smoke passed them and then cleared, I wanted to get on that bridge and go. But 
I met up with a few people I worked with and I directed traffic at in front of one police plaza for about 12 hours after that. I let the emergency vehicles in and the ambulances out. And uh, there was emergency vehicles flying past us with debris flying off the top of the vehicles. There were fire trucks going in, coming out. There was a lot going on that day. And like I said, I remember that day like it was yesterday. We will for sure put the link in the show notes because it is a harrowing account. Uh, and you don't have the opportunity to speak with somebody who is that close very often, who speaks about it so candidly. And one of the parts of the story that you wrote that hooked me was that you mentioned that you were on listening to Howard Stern on your Walkman. And yep. that that is how I found out that it was happening. I was driving with a couple of friends. We, we had gone camping. It was like a, a work camping uh, excursion that... I worked in a restaurant at the time, so we were closed on Monday. So we went on a on a Monday to Tuesday or like Sunday, yeah. Monday to Tuesday. We were coming back that morning and we heard about it on Howard Stern. So when I read that in your article, it just like all of a sudden, like everything just like honed in, like like I just locked into that article because you nailed that human relatability factor. I think a lot of people heard about this through the Howard Stern show who did he did an incredible job just breaking it down like moment by moment. Um, yeah. So again, yeah, great work on that. And, and we'll definitely put that in the show notes and just wanted to point that out just as an example of little things in your story that stand out and make it relatable. Great, great. Thank you for that. And that, that's the way I want to do. I wanted to put the human angle into it. I wanted people to realize that there were little events going on that day and there was little acts of heroism all over the place that day. And, uh, is some of those stories aren't told. And if someone doesn't speak about 9-11, that witness that I understood. But ironically, I had written it down on paper and I was not sure if I was going to ever get it published because I never intended to make any money off it. I just wanted people to read it. And that's why it's not part of my short stories. And ironically, I used to work at the cleanup and uh, I was security at the cleanup because I got promoted to supervisor. And I was getting these questions, what I was doing that day and where I was. And I told a lot of people why well, I was right there when those buildings fell. And they were like, you were right there. I said, yeah, I was right there. And I would point to the spot and I would get the same questions over and over. So I said, if people are interested in that story and they're interested in what I'm saying, then I need to put the pen to paper and I need to get this story out and I, and I need to speak of it. Because there are people that, whether someone like you who remembers that day or someone who was too young to remember it, it should not be forgotten. And one thing about the media we have now is is there's video of it but when you write it down personally people will read it and not forget it Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.